Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Adult Kids Still Get Financial Help from Parents by Julia Carpenter. Then Jenny Tates has an article, The Danger of Relying on Anti-Anxiety Drugs. And then David Robson, Don't Give Up Because You Slipped Up. Julia Bykotswitz and Ted Mann wrote, AM Car Radio, Fate Lies with Congress, and then Katie Rofi has The Perilous Pleasures of Family Gossip. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Adult Kids Still Get Financial Help from Parents. Parents have always supported their children into adulthood, from funding weddings to buying a home. Now the financial umbilical cord extends much later into adulthood. About 59% of parents said they helped their young adult children financially in the past year, according to a recently released report by the Pew Research Center that focused on adults under age 35. This question had not been asked in prior surveys. More young adults are also living with their parents. Among adults under age 25, 57% live with their parents, up from 53% in 1993. Parental support is continuing later in life because younger people now take longer to reach many adult milestones, and getting there is more expensive than it has been for past generations, economists and researchers said. There is also a larger wealth gap between older Americans and younger ones, giving some parents more means and reason to help. In short, moving off the parental payroll. That transition has gotten later and later for a lot of different reasons. Now it's age 25, 30, 35, 40, said Sarah Baer, founder of Simplify Financial Planning in San Francisco. Kami Lodopoulos, a 39-year-old director of design, and husband Adam Slokajenk, a 39-year-old high school teacher, knew they needed parental assistance to buy in New York's expensive market. We could pay a mortgage, but that down payment was the absolute crusher, he said. The idea of trying to save up on our own, as long as we were paying rents in New York, would have taken 300 years. Opadopoulos' mother gave them the money for a 10% down payment on a two-bedroom apartment in the New York City borough of Queens. Adult children aren't necessarily getting larger checks from their parents, but they are staying on the parental payroll for longer than previous generations, according to Marla Rapol, professor of economics at the University of Pittsburgh, who studied the trend by analyzing payments from parents to adult children during a 20-year span. Rapol found that 14% of adult children received the transfer of money from their parents at least once in any given year, and about half get financial help at some point within that period. 
Those rates have been stable for years. What has changed is that the transfers now continue for much longer, she found. This longer term might be a drag on social mobility as it becomes even harder for young people from lower-income families to catch up, researchers said. Of the young adult children who said they received financial help from a parent in the past year, most said they put it toward day-to-day household expenses, such as phone bills and subscriptions to streaming services like Netflix, the Pew survey showed. The amount of money and the frequency of help varies by age. Those on the older end of the 18 to 34 cohort are far likelier to say they are completely financially independent from their parents, compared with younger adult children, as many in the latter group are completing their education. Nearly a third of young adult children between the ages of 30 and 34 said they still get parental help. Heather McAfee, a 33-year-old physical therapist in Austin, Texas, says she lived at home between 2019 and 2021. That allowed her to make progress paying down her student loans while local rent prices remained so high. The plan worked. She has since reduced her student debt balance from $83,000 to $15,000. It helped tremendously, she said. I didn't have to take out more loans to pay for apartment living or anything like that. That stress was gone. A little more than half of parents surveyed said having their adult children home brought them closer together or improved their, their relationship but nearly 20% said it dented their personal finances. Financial advisors often find themselves in the tricky position of speaking to both ends of the equation. Adult children who need assistance and the parents determined to help children well into middle age within limits. Whereas previous generations would step into a greater sense of financial independence in their early 20s, Young adult children today are often unable to reach similar markers of such independence, living on their own or buying their first home, for example, without greater financial resources. Families typically don't set concrete rules around when financial help will happen and what the money is used for, which can result in surprises down the road, Bear said. In one case, Bear's clients received the down payment they needed to purchase a condo from a generous mother-in-law. Years later, that same mother-in-law told them she expected a payout once the couple sold the home. About a fifth of first-time home buyers said they got help from a relative or friend when putting together the money needed for a down payment, according to a 2023 survey from the National Association of Realtors. And 38% of home buyers under age 30 received help with the down payment from their parents, according to a Redfin survey. Wealthy families often go further than helping with the down payment. They become a true bank of mom and dad and write a mortgage. The Internal Revenue Service sets minimum levels of interest for such loans, which remain significantly cheaper than current mortgage rates. Timothy Burke, chief executive at National Family Mortgage, said parents are often frustrated on behalf of their house-hunting children. High interest rates and the cutthroat housing market are holding their children back from reaching a milestone the parents themselves were more easily able to access. Mai Chow, a 41-year-old stay-at-home mom, and her husband William Chow, 
a 44-year-old information technology specialist, bought their first house as a couple in 2017. They relied on financial help from her husband's two sisters and his mother to bridge a gap in their house-buying timeline. While they waited to sell Williams' Manhattan condo, they used the money from the family to purchase their new home in Queens. The structure of the agreement got tricky. After selling the condo, Maya and her husband were able to repay his sisters in full, but they didn't have enough money left over to do the same for Maya's mother-in-law so they kept the mother-in-law's name on the deed to the house. Ultimately, it all worked out, Maya said. Without her help, I could not say we would have this home. And now, the danger of relying on anti-anxiety drugs. One of my clients, Cameron, told me he always kept a low dose of the medication Clonopin on hand after he suffered a panic attack on a flight. It also helped when he was feeling an edge and stressed about his job in sales. Cameron explained that just knowing the pill bottle was in his bag was comforting, especially if he was anticipating a meeting he felt unprepared for or started to feel his heart fluttering. Clonopin makes me feel like I'm weightless, like I'm lying on a hammock, he told me, describing how the drug melted his stress away. His psychiatrist had prescribed it to help him ward off panic and advised him to take it just a couple of times a week. He liked the feeling of calm it created and quickly upped his dosage to daily. Yet part of the reason he came to see me, besides his stress, was that he wasn't feeling especially fulfilled. After he became concerned after his boyfriend, a therapist in training, told him that his memory and focus seemed worse than ever and that he should get help. Many people don't think twice about unwinding with a prescription benzodiazepine that can instantly bring physical calm, such as Clonopin, Ativan, or Xanax. More than 92 million prescriptions for these anti-anxiety drugs are filled in the United States each year. I do encourage some of my clients to consider taking psychiatric medications, especially for certain conditions where a prescription can be incredibly helpful, such as bipolar bipolar disorder. Medication can also be helpful at the start of therapy, particularly if someone is struggling to the point where it's affecting their ability to participate in treatment. But anti-anxiety medications belong in a different category. Benzos amplify a neurotransmitter known as GABA, G-A-B-A, which sets to acts to inhibit neuronal activity and tamp down stressful sensations. It's no wonder clients and friends alike tell me that benzodiazepines help them quiet their bodies and minds so they can quickly fall asleep. The problem is that when you start taking a benzo, the brain reduces its natural output of GABA, which means that tapering off the medication can result in even worse symptoms of anxiety along with extremely unpleasant withdrawal symptoms. I've seen many of my clients become dependent on benzos and then have to detox, an experience that causes sweating, headaches, muscular pain, insomnia, irritability, and nausea. Excessive benzo use can also cause aggressiveness and poor judgment and increase the risk of dementia in the long term. 
Robert Whitaker, a journalist and former director of publications at Harvard Medical School, explains that benzos were discovered in the 1950s when Hoffman LaRoche, a pharmaceutical company, was developing medication to treat gram-positive bacteria. The company noticed that after the drug was administered to lab mice on the verge of being electrocuted, the rodents behaved passively. Even on a low dose, the mice remained calm as they would approach a device that would administer a shock. In the 1960s, psychiatrist and pharmaceutical marketer Arthur Sackler, who you may have heard of in relation to the current opioid crisis, began advertising Valium as mother's little helper to women who felt depleted by stultifying days at home as housewives. The problem is no substance can can cure you of an unsatisfying life, not Valium then, nor the variety of benzodiazepines available now. When it comes to navigating anxiety, facing your fears rather than running away from them or drugging them into submission is essential to reclaiming your freedom. Having uncomfortable emotions and sensations is normal. Taking a sedative is about escaping those sensations and emotions when what we actually need to learn is to accept them. It's almost a painful paradox that in instances when we most need to think, this medication blunts the capacity to be shrewd. I told Cameron that if he continued to take a pill to calm down, in case of a nerve-wracking situation like turbulence, he was setting himself up to become dependent on the pill instead of learning to navigate his anxiety. Dr. Tola Samuri, an addiction psychiatrist and instructor at Harvard Medical School, says that she prescribes benzos in small amounts for people who have been hospitalized for an acute psychiatric problem, knowing that she'll taper them off this class of medication before they leave the hospital. But many people go on to use them for months and years, which creates complications and dangers, especially when, over time, you notice it's not working as well. And so you increase it again and keep increasing it. And then you begin to realize that you can't live without it, she explains. Anything that quickly changes how someone feels is going to have abuse liability, says addiction psychiatrist Arthur Robin Williams of Columbia University. The allure of a substance that can help you feel less anxious or lonely in minutes may be powerful, Dr. Williams says, but the immediacy of symptom relief is a huge red flag for risk of dependence. Over time, that's going to lead to the quickest buildup of tolerance and the worst withdrawal. As Whitaker puts it, prolonged use of benzos can cause an iatrogenic brain injury. In other words, a medical treatment that causes a medical problem. Another critical issue with these drugs is that people begin to rely on them as a coping strategy at the expense of other healthier emotion regulation techniques. And while quitting benzos can be difficult initially, especially since the stress response during early abstinence can be more intense, Cameron and my other clients ultimately find that the effort is worth it. Without the medication, they have less anxiety and depression and are better able to stay alert and engage with the world in all its ups and downs. And now, don't give up because you slipped up. The science of keeping a New Year's resolution calls for overcoming the 
what-the-hell effect. January is a month of fresh hope and broken promises. Whether we have planned to eat less, work out more, or save money, many of us manage to keep our resolutions for days or even weeks till we finally give in to our impulses to eat cake, dodge the treadmill, or splash out on a senseless whim. Logically speaking, a slip-up should not derail our attempts to reach a long-term goal, but all too often, a single failure to maintain self-control is quickly succeeded by another and another till we eventually give up. It is as if our resolve, once broken, can never be repaired, at least until next year when we start the whole process again. Psychologists call this cascading loss of self-control the setback effect, or more colloquially, the -the what-the-hell effect. For decades, scientists offered little recourse for those of us hoping to break the cycle. But recent research has identified its underlying cause, which means we now have evidence-based strategies to put us back on track. The setback effect was first noted among overdrinkers and overeaters who had resolved to consume less. In one classic study from the 1970s, C. Peter Herman and Deborah Mack recruited a group of 45 participants to judge the flavor of milkshake samples followed by ice cream. The researchers carefully controlled the milkshake portions while the ice cream quantities were left entirely to the participants themselves. Many of the experiment's participants reported being highly conscious of their weight, so you might expect that those who received bigger milkshake portions would have cut back on their ice cream. But the opposite was true. The participants who slurped the most milkshake ended up eating more ice cream too. After a dose of intemperance, resistance seemed futile. Why does a perceived failure of self-control nudge us to devalue our goals? According to research by psychologist Pam Ten Broker and Mariki Adranasi at Leiden University, the setback effect appears to come from a reduced sense of self-efficacy. Put simply, each lap weakens our ability in our our confidence in our abilities to resist temptation and these negative beliefs become a self-fulfilling prophecy. In a series of experiments published in the European Journal of Social Psychology last year, Tenbrook and Adriacy asked hundreds of dieters to report any time they had broken their self-imposed restrictions in the days leading up to the study and to describe their feelings about those setbacks. Most participants reported that they intended to stick to their diet but many also admitted they had less faith in their capacity to maintain good habits. The researchers found this drop in confidence predicted a real decline in sustaining a diet over the next few days. The implications are clear for anyone who wishes to cultivate new habits. By bolstering our feelings of competence, we can become more resistant to failure. We simply need to steady our confidence in our ability to reach our goals. One way to change our mindset is to rethink our choices in a way that avoids personal blame. Dieters, for example, can be encouraged to see slips as situational, rather than as indictments of willpower or self-control. Tenbroki and Associates recruited around 300 participants who were on a diet and tracked their behavior over four days. 
At the start of the study, they gave some a short text designed to encourage self-forgiveness by reminding them of all the factors that might lead to a setback, including the environment or the people around you. These factors have a tremendous but often underestimated effect on your reading behavior, the note added. It worked. The people who read this text were considerably better at sticking to their diet than participants who had not been encouraged to reappraise their lapsed self-control. The researchers saw similar improvements in participants who hoped to procrastinate less. Those who contextualized the causes of their dithering were less likely to waste their time overall. Another way to strengthen our resolve is to remember past successes. If you have just skipped the gym class, you might try to focus your mind on your activities last week, when you overcame your lethargy and pounded the treadmill like an Olympian. Such reminders demonstrate enhancedly our faith in our ability to achieve our goals which should prevent an occasional setback from cascading into a what-the-hell binge session. My favorite strategy is to allow strategic indulgences, which involves deliberately planning the occasional vice to inoculate against accidental relapses. Social media is one of my biggest distractions, and I used to spend hours of each day mindlessly scrolling through posts. I find I waste far less time if I give myself permission to look at X or Instagram for 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes after lunch, which scratches my itch to see what's trending. Once the time is up, I can return to work with my sense of self-efficacy intact as I mindfully created the parameters for this treat. By this logic, a dieter might plan for a regular donut or a spendthrift might budget an occasional splurge. Our journey toward our goals can accommodate detours, particularly if we plot them in advance. Our new understanding of the setback effect and its cures chimes with the burgeoning science of self-compassion. While it is undoubtedly necessary to own our mistakes, many people take this too far. Psychologists measure this tendency by asking people to rate how strongly They endorse statements such as, when I fail at something important to me, I become consumed by feelings of inadequacy. When we lack compassion for our missteps, we are not only more likely to beat ourselves up, but also less likely to learn from our mistakes. This is because we assume it isn't in our power to fix or change our problems when we believe they are inescapable parts of our character. It is only when we see our setbacks as a natural part of the human condition that we can find the resolve to chase our goals. To err, of course, is all too human. Self-forgiveness is both divine and constructive. So why not make self-compassion a priority for the rest of 2024? By deciding to be a little kinder to yourself as you reckon with your first deviations from your resolutions, you may find that your life goals are easier to achieve. And now, AM Car Radio Fate Lies with Congress. AM radio advocates, including conservative talk show hosts like Hewitt and federal emergency officials, are lobbying Congress to stop car makers from dropping the old medium. Tesla, Volvo, and BMW are among the companies that have already stopped providing AM tuners in some models. 
Last year, Ford said it would join them until CEO Jim Farley reversed course after speaking with policy leaders. Lawmakers say most car companies are non-committal, so they want to require them by law to keep making cars with free AM radio. Supporters argue it is a critical piece of the emergency communications network, while the automakers say Americans have plenty of other ways to receive alerts and information. The legislation has united lawmakers who ordinarily want nothing to do with one another. Senators Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas, and Ed Markey, Democrat from Massachusetts, are leading the Senate effort, and on the House side, Republican Speaker Mike Johnson, a former conservative talk radio host in Louisiana, and progressive squad member Representative Rashida Tlaib, Democrat Michigan, are among 200 co-sponsors. Representative Josh Gonheimer, Democrat from New Jersey, who introduced the House bill, plans to ask the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to require a safety warning on price stickers of vehicles that lack AM radio. There are more than 4,500 AM radio stations in the United States. The president of the National Association of Broadcasters, Curtis Leggett, said, More than 400,000 listeners have contacted lawmakers, he said. Hewitt, a radio host since 1990, said, There's a diversity of thought and fun in radio that you can't get from podcasts. He also makes an argument that resonates with Cruz and other conservatives. Their last chance of getting a fair interview is going away. The prospect of losing AM in vehicles has also caused alarm in Latino media, said Sylvia Banderas Cofinet, chief executive of Latino Media Network, which owns more than a dozen stations. AM radio's DJs are trusted voices in the community, she she said. The medium has long been in decline. A spring 2023 Nielsen survey, the most recent one available, showed that AM radio reaches about 78 million Americans every month down from nearly 107 million in the spring of 2016, one of the earliest periods for Nielsen data. Tiffany Moore, Senior Vice President of Political and Industry Affairs for the Consumer Technology Association, said automakers and tech advocacy groups have told lawmakers that an AM radio requirement would be inconsistent with the principles of a free market. Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky, who blocked passage of the Senate bill back in December, noted the irony of Republicans like Cruz arguing for government mandates on private businesses. Both the Senate and House bills keep picking up new supporters. Automakers say the rise of electric vehicles is driving the shift away from AM because onboard electronics interfere with AM radio signals. Shielding to reduce interference would cost car makers $3.8 billion over seven years, estimates the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, a car industry trade group. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, says that more than 75 mostly AM radio stations, covering at least 90% of the population, are equipped to continue broadcasting during and after an emergency. 
Seven former FEMA administrators urged Congress last week to seek assurances from automakers that they would keep broadcast radio available. Carmakers counter that FEMA's own alert systems are designed to break in across break in across multiple platforms. Most Americans receive the October 4th nationwide test of the emergency alert system on their phones, while about 1% of the population heard it on AM radio, according to a study by the Consumer Technology Association. Automakers increasingly want to put features behind a paywall, Markey said. Auto executives have said that the software-defined vehicle, which provides which provides opportunities to sell drivers subscriptions for features from, behind, from heated seats to entertainment services will grow. General Motors Chief Executive Mary Barrett told investors back in October that GM was positioning itself to drive significant revenue growth from subscriptions in the future. Markey compared auto industry resistance to previous opposition to mandates like airbags. Leaving safety decisions to the auto industry is very dangerous, he said. And now, the perilous pleasures of family gossip. A couple of years ago, my teenage daughter Violet sent me a war and peace length text full of searing moral condemnation. Our family literally operates on an axis of drama and gossip that is perpetuated by Nana and possibly you and your sisters. She went on to talk about how she and her cousins did not want to be involved in this adult dysfunction. When I read this text, I was chastened and also a bit amused. I have a big family with many sisters. At any given point in the day, my mother is on the phone with one of us. But were we operating on an axis of drama and gossip? And is it so bad if we were? Maybe family gossip actually diffuses tension. Maybe it's not dysfunction, but a way of coping. Maybe gossip enables us to work through the difficulties of family life so we can get to its pleasures. How better to make sense of the world than to talk about it with the people you've been talking about things with since you were born? I realize that this is not the popular view. A few minutes on TikTok will unearth earnest lectures on toxic family gossip and cathartic riffs on freeing yourself from it. In Jewish law, there are commandments against gossip. In the Bible, Miriam gets leprosy for gossiping about her brother Moses. And of course, there are situations, maybe even in my own family, where we are fanning fires, egging each other on, just being catty. But what about harmless family gossip? What about the human need to comment on goings-on? In her wonderful essay, In Praise of Gossip, the scholar Patricia Meyer Spax calls gossip healing talk. This may sound like a stretch, but I think there can be something therapeutic about talking things through, about expressing rather than simmering. One might argue that jokes and snippets of gossip and derisive text makes it possible for us to smooth the edges, to show up for each other, to pull ourselves together in real life. It is possible that family gossip, the jokes on a group chat, the venting and harping between sisters, helps us get through crisis together. I think there is a way to look at this axis my daughter was talking about as a survival mechanism. 
Over decades, how does one deal with the foibles and eccentricities of family members? How does one navigate aging parents and assorted emergencies? There are absurdities that come up in family life, things to absorb and comment on, ways in which reality is distorted by one individual or another. Gossip may be a genuine effort to make sense of things, to define and name disturbances in our small universe. In some contexts, maybe gossip is not toxic, but rather an intellectual labor, a working through. The novelist Laurie Colwin recasts gossip as emotional speculation, which I think is useful. If my sisters were gossiping about me, I imagine they would talk in earlier phases of life about my dubious taste in men, or they might gripe about my annoying habit of writing about the people in my life. Does this bother me? Honestly, I'd rather they talk about these things among themselves without me. This is not to say that all gossip is harmless. There are, of course, family stories that wound, distances that arise. I have seen people drift from their siblings because of machinations behind their back, so there is an edge to gossip, a risk. My daughter made the compelling point that in a world that is bruising and arduous and critical, a table should be a safe space. You should feel unconditional support from the people closest to you who have known you your whole life. Of course she is absolutely right. But then again, if you feel a bone-deep confidence in your connection to your family, a little idle gossip can't touch it. I have noticed that gossip thrives in bigger families, maybe because there is more space for alliances, more competition, more jostling for love, and attention in formative years. One of my friends has an official family group chat that is plight, almost formal, where everyone is their best selves and then several side chats, between her and each of her brothers, where they snipe and vent about each other. We're a small town, says another friend who grew up with four siblings. She forwarded me a chain where she forgot one sister was included and accidentally made a catty joke about her and then quickly backpedaled. This friend is very sanguine about the culture of gossip in her family, which is mostly jokes and patter. Ultimately, we all love each other and hate each other, she says. We all have opinions and feelings that are best not shared directly. My own family is made up of psychiatrists, lawyers, and writers, so maybe it is not surprising that in personal life we litigate, we analyze, and we storytell. The journalists among us want to bring news. To me, there is joy in little details observed and shared. Is it terrible to say? Gossip is fun. Many of us love to curl up with a big family saga, but what about the one we are living in? It is hard to resist stories, the desire to create narrative out of the mess and chaos of experience. A Jane Austen character observes that gossip is also something that makes one know one's species better. But back to my own family, that hotbed of gossip. Would it be better for the next generation if they didn't have a cable of ants mulling over their romantic choices? Would it be healthier if they didn't overhear their mothers complaining about various and sundry family happenings? Perhaps, but one could also argue that all this care and attention and picking apart is the other side of love. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.